Let's open the Scriptures this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 38. So the Lord Jesus has been engaged in some debate with the leaders of the Jews. They've accused Him of uh, being demon-possessed, and He has denied that, of course. So there's challenging from the side of the scribes and the Pharisees. We pick it up at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. We're continuing in a series of sermons on this uh, book of John's Gospel. We come to chapter 5, and we'll be looking at the first 18 verses. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool. In, and I'm just following the footnote, in, he, in Hebrew called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And now I'm also picking up the footnote waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? 
Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's as far as we'll take our text this morning. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing two songs, Psalm 107, stanza 7, and we'll couple that with hymn 45, 107, stanza 7 plus hymn 45. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text this morning, chapter 5, verse 1 through 18, it's the beginning of a new section in John's gospel. You might recall that as we've worked our way through chapters 1 through 4, we saw that that was really an introduction to the whole book. And there we learn for the first time of certain themes which the gospel writer wants to communicate. These themes he now picks up in chapter 5 and beyond, and he layers them with greater depth. He does that specifically through the next section, chapters 5 through 12. That's where the next break is. What the writer John does is to give us close-ups of certain incidents in Jesus' ministry that both reveal who Jesus is and what He came to do, and also the very sad, hostile response that He receives. That's one of those themes from chapter 1, the hostile response. The more Christ makes Himself known as God's Son, chapter 1, the more that He comes to bring life and light into the darkness of the human race, the more His people, generally speaking on the whole, the more the Jews reject Him. Chapter 1, verse 11. We've already seen something of this building in chapters 2 through 4. There's an apparent belief. And now that apparent belief of those early crowds will soon show itself for what it really is as the leaders of the Jews, the leaders of the covenant people, and slowly on the crowds too, they turn away from the Lord Jesus. And that rejection, it begins to go a layer deeper in our text of this morning. Chapter 5, the whole chapter is actually one connected story, but it's too long to deal with in one sermon. But the story goes like this, first a miracle, then a reaction to the miracle, a negative reaction, followed by a long verbal defense of the miracle by Jesus Himself. Chapter 6 repeats the same pattern. So this morning we're going to focus on the first part of that, just the, the miracle that Jesus does, or as John calls it, the sign that He does. 
when he heals this lame man and, and has a certain interaction with this lame fellow by the pool. The question for us is, what does this healing tell us about Jesus? What does this healing tell us about this man and about the Jewish people of the day? And what does this healing tell us even about ourselves? And so I bring you this word of the Lord under this theme, Jesus does His Father's Sabbath work. We'll see that He heals the body, and at the same time, He calls the heart. We, left, uh, we last left Jesus at the end of chapter 4 up in Galilee, in the northern part of the land. John tells us, chapter 5, verse 1, that He comes south to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. Which feast? We are not told. We know, of course, that the Israelites had a number of feasts throughout the year to which uh, most faithful Jewish men would come, and very often their families come with them, but at least the men would come. So Jesus does what, what a regular faithful Jewish believer does. He travels to Jerusalem for the feasts. And as we go along in, in John's gospel, we'll see that John chooses to capture a number of incidents that occur at those feasts in Jerusalem in the ministry of Christ. And this, this particular one concerns a man who is lying lame beside the pool of Bethesda. This pool lay just outside the walls of Jerusalem, just uh, in, at the part of Jerusalem where the temple is built close to the wall, a little ways north of it, north of a little gate in the wall called the Sheep Gate. Now, when we hear about a pool, we think Pool of Bethesda, we might think of a backyard swimming pool or maybe a community pool in our neighborhoods where there's a concrete deck around or some nice landscaping and some lounging chairs. Well, that's not this kind of pool. Those kind of pools didn't exist in Jerusalem in those days. There were, in fact, only a very few pools in the city, and they were either used as reservoirs for general water supply, or they were used for washing. Some were used to wash the sacrificial animals that were brought into the temple, and that could have been the use of at least part of the pool of Bethesda. We don't know exactly what it was used for, but we do know it was quite large. They've actually excavated that area. They found these pools back. They were twin pools, each about 95 meters long and about 60 meters wide. So each of these pools is about double the size of an Olympic pool, 15 meters deep. And they were, these two pools were separated by a wall of uh, uh, kind of a retaining wall or maybe even a dam. One pool slightly higher in elevation than another with five uh, colonnades around uh, what our text calls roofed colonnades. We might think of them as covered porches on four sides of this long pool with, with an extra porch on that wall in between. So five covered porches. That's what John tells us about. And underneath those covered porches, there were lying, he says, many sick people. And he mentioned some examples, blind people, lame people, even paralyzed people. 
It was their habit to come there or be brought there and, and, and lay there or sit there day after day waiting. What were they waiting for? Well, they were waiting for one thing, the possibility that the water would be stirred up and they could get into the water first in order to be healed. Now, let me say something about that little footnote because you might be wondering about that. Footnote number four in the, our pew Bible and why verse four is not in the text proper, why it's in the footnote. Can't say everything about it, but let me say a few things. There's some debate about whether this verse four belongs to John's gospel, the original gospel. I think you'll know that the original manuscript that John wrote with his own hand no longer exists. He would have written it on parchment or something like it, and parchment over time rots. And people knew this, so from generation to generation, they would copy all the important books or manuscripts that they thought necessary. And in the case of the New Testament writings, all of those writings were preserved by copying from generation to generation. Now, a lot, so, so over time, you get a lot of copies of the various books of the New Testament. Some were preserved for many centuries, some only a little while, but over time you get a number of them accumulating. And a lot of copies do have verse 4 in the text. There's a few that don't, and that's where the dispute lies. Those few that do not are thought by some scholars to be, a, scholars to be of such great importance and hold such great weight that it makes them suspicious of the other manuscripts that do have verse 4 in there. They think that maybe some copyist added verse 4 to kind of explain what was going on. And many of the scholars find verse 4 kind of a superstitious religious thing that uh, as if an angel would come down and stir water. That sounds kind of superstitious to them. Well, we can't, as I say, get into all the details, but I'll just be honest, for my part, I can't see why verse 4 should be excluded. For not only is it in many, many manuscripts, it also gives us a good, clear reason why these ailing people made all that effort to lay there day after day after day, and evidently even year after year in some cases. I mean, this is clearly not a hot spring known for its therapeutic value. That's not why they're there. They're there for a miracle healing. Verse 7 implies that. The man says, I try to get down to the water when it's stirred, but somebody always beats me, and it's only the first one in who gets it. So it's like a race to the stirred water. It, this was a known thing. Why else would a paralyzed person wait there year after year unless he had actually seen the water stirred up had actually seen a previously sick or lame or blind person jump in that water and instantly become healed. Why else would you have hope for those waters like this man did even after 38 years? Unless you were convinced God did a miracle in that water. And if we stand back and think about it, is it really so ridiculous? Is it really so out of the realm of possibility, that God in His mercy would send down an angel from time to time to touch this water with healing power? 
and to do so as a sign that the covenant God of Israel was still there and still concerned for the misery of His people. If we think about the, the time in which Jesus was walking the earth, it was a dark time spiritually. Remember, the last prophet had been Malachi 400 years earlier. So there had been no word from God in all that time until John the Baptist had come quite recently. So spiritually, the Israelites are at a very low ebb. Even as John and Jesus come preaching that gospel, repent and believe, they are confronted with what? Countless sick people, blind, lame, even the demon-possessed, we read very often in the gospels. Demons, think about that, demons were possessing some of God's covenant people. If demons could possess some of God's people, why can't an angel bring healing a touch to waters that would then bring healing to at least one of God's people? And so for my part, I see no reason why this, this pool could not have been exactly what verse 4 describes it to have been a little ray of sunshine, a, a little beacon of hope meant to encourage God's people whom He loved. Isn't that why these waters were called the Pool of Bethesda? I want you to notice how John makes that point in verse 2. He says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Hebrew, look at the footnote, in Hebrew called Bethesda. John's writing in Greek, but he makes reference to the Hebrew, the original language of the Jews. Why does he do that? Well, he wants us to understand that word, Bethesda. Bethesda is a, made up of two Hebrew words. Beth means house, and that second word, Hesda, is a form of that well-known Hebrew word, Hesed. That's a word which, which means steadfast love means mercy it means loving kindness it could be translated any of those ways every jew knew that word they knew how many times in the hebrew scriptures our old testament it describes god's steadfast love to his people we sang a, an example of it from psalm 85 stanza 2 your never failing love and mercy show lord and your salvation on us bestow o lord Everybody knew of the Lord's steadfast love and mercy and compassion. And that's why the invalids were down there at the pool of Bethesda under the covered porches. To them, this was Bethesda. This was the house of mercy. This was the house of steadfast love where they could possibly experience mercy in their bodies. So, let's try to picture what's happening into Bethesda, into this, this house, these covered porches, this house where God's covenant mercy is known to appear on a semi-regular basis. Into this house of mercy walks Jesus. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the mercy of God in the flesh, is He not? 
Jesus had said to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the mercy of God. Jesus is the steadfast love of God, come down from heaven to the earth, and now He's come to the pool where all the afflicted lie. Just like Jesus is the temple of God in the flesh that He made clear in chapter 2, so Jesus is Bethesda in the flesh. He's come to bring the mercy of God right to His people in person. He's come to bring them life. And He sees a man there who had been an invalid for 38 years. He was not born with this condition, but the impression we get is that he became lame at some point in his life, and he had suffered that way for some 38 years. So if he perhaps became lame when he was a teenager, the man would be over 50 years of age, which for an invalid in particular was a, an old man. Remember that there are now many sick there are many ailing people lying in these covered porches. And then Jesus looks around and He selects this one. Why? It's as if Jesus selects the man who's the worst off of the lot, one of those who suffered the longest, the one who had the least help available to Him, right? He says, I've got no one to take me down and put me in the pool. The one who was among the most discouraged, the one who has the most reason for despair, and Jesus goes to him. So he's going to the darkest area to shine his light, to give hope. You know, most often in the Gospels, when you read about the healings, we find it's the sick who come flocking to Jesus, but here it is Jesus who goes looking for the sick. In fact, the man whom, who, who will be healed doesn't even know who Jesus is. So far as he is concerned, it's a stranger that's coming up to him with an odd question. Verse 6, do you want to be healed, he asks this invalid who's lying beside the pool of Bethesda. I mean, what kind of a question is that? To this man, how, how would he have received that question? Imagine you and I, you or I, going into a hospital with all kinds of sick people that have been there a long time or a, maybe a long-term care home filled with people who are ill or lame or paralyzed, have been there month after month, even year after year, and then asking them, um, do you want to be healed? It almost sounds insulting at first, right? Like, what do you mean do I want to be healed? Do you think I like my condition? Do you think I would prefer to remain stuck in my sick bed rather than get up and be healthy and strong? The man, in his answer, is thinking along similar lines. It's, it's polite, but it's defensive. He says, Julie, of course I want to be healed, but I can never get down to the water in time, and only the first gets in. I have no one to help me get down there. So by implication, he's saying, yes, I want to be healed, but I, I'm stuck. I have no one to help me. What the man doesn't realize is that Jesus, as he often does, is, is very subtly asking a different question. 
He's not asking about the man's desire to get into the water because that's obvious enough. He's lying there day after day for that very purpose. Now Jesus is asking, do you want to be healed by me? That's the implication. That, that's subtle. I will be the one to help you, the one you don't have to help. You've got nobody to help. I'll be your helper. I know you want the healing offered by God in the stirred up waters, but do you want the healing that I offer you? And this word that Jesus used for healing is a word for overall wellness, wholeness of health. It's a closely associated word with that well-known word shalom from the Hebrew. So what Jesus is asking this man is, would you like me to make you well in your body and in your soul? I have true shalom to offer you. Would you like me to make it well with your soul? Well, how about you, brothers and sisters? Do you want the kind of healing that Jesus is offering? Even more, do you want the Jesus who's offering it? That's the bigger issue in our text. Lots of people in Israel were physically healed by Jesus. They came looking for that healing whether for themselves or for their loved ones. They came to Jesus in crowds, but how many people looked past the gift to the giver? How many wanted the mercy of the healing but did not see in the healer the very Savior of their souls? How many did not see the healing they really needed on the inside? It was a similar issue with the healing of the paralytic in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. You remember that paralytic who had four friends? So this fellow has no friends in our text. That guy had four friends, and he, they climbed up on the roof. They dug through the roof. They lowered their friend on, a, on his stretcher, on his mat, down in front of Jesus in that crowded room. First thing Jesus says was what? Not get up and walk. No. Son, your sins are forgiven. That's the first thing he said. He went after the spiritual healing in that occasion first. And the Jewish leaders took offense at him on that occasion, putting him, Jesus put himself in the place of God who alone has the right to forgive sins. Well, very soon the leaders here in Jerusalem, because that took place in Galilee, they will also take offense at him. But first the question is put to the man who needs mercy. It's put to the man who needs shalom in both his body and his soul. And it's a question put to you and to me. Do you want the healing that I, Jesus, have to give? Do you want me as your Savior and your Lord? Or will we take offense at Jesus and ignore His call to our hearts? For there's no doubt that offense was taken on this occasion, and it begins with those Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. John very skillfully turns the story in that direction, starting in verse 9, 
with that simple statement, now that day was the Sabbath. And this healing came to the attention of the Jewish authorities because of Jesus' explicit command for the man to rise, take up his bed, and walk. Now, when it says bed, we have to think not the kinds of beds most of us got up out of this morning. This was more like a very thin mat, something we might have on a camping trip, but very thin. I mean, this man would have been also a poor individual, so it wasn't much to sleep on. A very thin mat rolled out each night for sleeping on, or in his case, maybe he was lying on it all day. And as the authorities now see the man walking around carrying this bundle under his arm, they approach him, verse 10, and they say, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, we should understand this whole matter carefully. The Sabbath day has always been a day of God's rest for God's people, a day on which no work was to be done. And although it does not say anywhere in the laws of Moses that one cannot carry his mat on the Sabbath day, the Jewish leaders over the course of time, they had developed lots of extra rules to kind of fill in the details of what actually constituted work and what didn't constitute work. They had a whole list upon list, this was work, this was not work. And they decided that carrying a burden was work. And now in their eyes, carrying this mat under, the, under his arm, that was a burden carrying. So that's what the, the leaders see. That's what they focus in on. No matter the fact that this fellow had just been set free from 38 years of misery, no matter the great mercy of God down at Bethesda, as far as the leaders were concerned, the big issue, the big problem was breaking the Sabbath by carrying the roll under his arm. But was it breaking the Sabbath? And more than that mat issue, it soon became the healing itself that they got exercised about. Because after the man told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who healed him, we read in verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things, healings, he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So after verse 16, the Jewish leaders, they turn their attention away from that formerly invalid, invalid man and his mat-carrying ways. They, they forget about him. They turn their attention now to Jesus, and they were ticked off that he had dared to break the Sabbath with his act of healing. Again, never mind the fact that the man has the power to heal. They were ticked off that he healed on the Sabbath. We find the very same controversy in the other Gospels occurring up north in Galilee. Here it's in the south. In the leader's mind, healing on the Sabbath was work, and because it was work, that made it a sin. But is that, in fact, true? Was it work? Was it a sin in the eyes of God? What if God had sent an angel down to the water on that particular Sabbath day to stir up the water and someone had stepped in or splashed in and was healed? Would that have been an offense to the Jewish leaders? 
I mean, clearly, all the sick people were under those porches thinking it was a possibility also for that Sabbath day. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been there. Would God be breaking His own Sabbath day by healing on it? In the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Lord Jesus defends His Sabbath healing by asking the Jewish leaders whether it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath or not. But I want you to notice here in John's Gospel, He presents a different reason, a different line of defense. Verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. That's His defense for doing what He did on the Sabbath day. He states something, that opening part of verse 17, he states something that even the Jewish leaders would agree with. God is working. God works every single day, including the Sabbath. All the Jews knew that. God, now Jesus is saying, God, who is my Father, you know He's working. He's maintaining and He's upholding all of creation. He's providing for the needs of His people. If He wasn't working, there'd be no food in the fields. There would be no breath in your bodies. Jesus is urging them to think very carefully when He says what He says. Doesn't God extend forgiveness and mercy every Sabbath in the temple through the forgiveness of, of, of sins in the sacrifices? Isn't the, the very existence of the Sabbath day a great reminder of God's mercy to the Israelites in setting them free from Egypt, right? We, we heard about that in the Ten Commandments, Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. Why? Deuteronomy 5, because I set you free from Egypt. The Sabbath is to be a, a, in remembrance of your freedom day. It's to be liberation day. Doesn't the Sabbath day stand as an emblem of God's grace? And doesn't it point forward to the time when God will pour out the fullness of His grace on His people and give them Sabbath rest from their sins? Isn't that what Sabbath has always meant? My Father is working until now, and I am working. In a very short way, Jesus is, is, is suddenly taking us a whole level deeper into His true identity. He's not just a healer. He's not just a prophet. He is Son, the Son of God. This is my Father in heaven. I have been sent from heaven to do my Father's work. My act of making a man whole on the Sabbath day is exactly what my Father wants me to do. That's what He's saying to the Jews. This is my Father's proper Sabbath work. He sent me to give eternal rest from sin to His people. This healing at the pool of Bethesda is just a sign of what I'm here to do. This is my Father's work. This is my work. I've got to be here on the Sabbath doing this. That's why Jesus, in the, all through the Gospels, doesn't lay off healing on the Sabbath. You, you might, might have noticed that in the other Gospels. Time and again, He comes back, and He puts it into the face of the Jew, Jewish leaders. 
He heals and He restores and He blesses and He sets free on the Sabbath again and again. And the Jewish leaders, they understood the implication of what He says in verse 17 because John tells us in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, that's their opinion, but He was even calling God His own Father. Here it comes making himself equal with God. They understood exactly what Jesus meant. They knew Jesus was putting himself on par with God, calling him his Father. They, he was putting his work on par with God's work, and the Jewish leaders hated Jesus for that. But you and I, brothers and sisters, you and I, we can love Jesus for that, right? Because who is Jesus? He is this Word. He's the Word made flesh, John chapter 1. He was with God and He is God. This is God in human nature going about doing His saving work, healing the lame, calling out to them and to us for a total surrender of the heart. Jesus wants us to have rest, not just in body, that too, but also in soul. He wants us to have that complete rest that He came to bring. For this newly healed man clearly does not yet have faith. His body has been healed, but like the demoniacs in other cases in the Gospels elsewhere, this man, similar to them, he was healed before he even knew his healer. So he doesn't yet have faith. He's just a healed man. He's like that empty house of Matthew 12, which we read. Jesus gives a little parable there to describe the nature of, of the Israelites as a whole. And this man in our text is kind of a living example of Israel as a whole, where where. Jesus has come to the Israelites and healed them, cast out demons, cast out sicknesses. So the Israelites as a nation are like a man who's had his house swept clean. But no one's living in it yet. And then the demons come back, says Jesus in Matthew 12. Seven, takes seven of his buddies, that demon that left. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. That, that's, what, that's the trajectory Israel was on. That's the trajectory this man is on unless he sometime repents. So Jesus goes looking for him in the temple. This, this man is a swept clean house. That's not enough, though. You have to occupy your house with, the, with faith and with the Holy Spirit. So he goes looking for him. Verse 14 Earlier in John's Gospel, we, we ran into that verse, found here too. Jesus finds the man. That's not an accidental finding. That's not, hey, uh, nice to bump into you here in the temple. No, no. Jesus goes looking for this man. It's the kind of finding you do after you've searched for someone in the area you know where he's likely to be. Jesus had more work to do with this man. And when he finds him, he says, see, you are well. Think about the implication of that, knowing what happened down at the pool. See, you are well. 
It recalls what transpired at the house of mercy. See, I have made you whole, didn't I? You know I was your helper down there at the pool, don't you? It was I who gave you the command to rise. I gave you that healing. I gave you that shalom. And then Jesus goes on to give an instruction. Now, to stay in this new condition of grace, here's what you have to do. Sin no more that nothing worse may befall you. Tell me, brothers and sisters, if Jesus had said that to you, how would you have felt? Sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. Would that offend you? Would you get your back up? It's pretty serious what Jesus is saying. He's alluding to sin in this man's life that had earlier, 38 years earlier, brought down punishment, the punishment of God on him. In other words, he became lame because of some sin in his life. Now, some people are quick to say, well, hey, wait a second. God doesn't work that way. Isn't that what we learn from the book of Job and the, the three friends of Job who accused Job of having some sin in his life that he wasn't revealing, and that's why God was punishing him? Isn't that what we learn from Job? Just because someone is suffering doesn't mean that God is punishing them for their sin? And that's true. It's not an automatic necessary conclusion that we have to make. Lots of times, no particular sin lies behind a sickness or an injury, but it certainly is a possible reason. It's a reason we should consider. God does, at certain times, punish or discipline His people with a particular pain or illness or injury in their bodies. And of course, we need to be very, very cautious not to jump to conclusions whenever an ailment befalls a person. But nevertheless, do we not learn from Scripture, do we not learn from David's experiences in Psalm 38, which we sang, that God can certainly discipline us in our bodies on account of our sin? Didn't God strike Miriam with leprosy? Didn't He strike King Uzziah later on with leprosy because of their sin? And what about in the New Testament when the Holy Spirit struck, struck down Ananias and Sapphira because they lied to the Holy Spirit? And even in the church at Corinth, some were falling sick. Some even died, it says in chapter 11, because they profaned, they abused the Lord's Supper. So it's a thing. If illness or injury or pain enters our life, would we be willing to ask, have I brought this upon myself with my sin? Would we examine ourselves? Lord, have I wronged you? that you are now disciplining me 
If so, Lord, open my eyes, lead me to repentance so I can be right with you. That takes humility, right? And it takes faith, trust in God. It would be easier, more natural to be annoyed by that question, to be self-defensive about this idea that I, I, I could have brought this on my own head with my own sin, to seek to turn the attention away from our sin. And that's kind of how this man acts, isn't it? If you think about the whole story, nowhere in the whole story does this man ever express thanks to Jesus who cured him with a simple command. Never says thanks. Never expresses faith in Jesus as Savior. You can compare this account with the later story in John 9 with the healing of the man born blind where Jesus does say that that sin or that condition is no connection with anybody's sin. So there you have a different scenario. But the two stories are meant to be compared. We'll see that when we get to John 9. In John 5, there's no gratitude. There's no worship of the Lord. There's no faith. There's no standing up for Jesus against the hostile authorities like the later man does. Instead, this formerly lame man actually turns on his heels. What does he do? He reports Jesus to the temple authorities knowing that they would be opposed to him. He rats him out. He, he sicks the authorities down on Jesus. He knew what they would do. He knew they'd come after Jesus. Jesus, with his words to this healed man, is issuing a call to his heart. Go, sin no more. Come to me. The Jewish, this Jewish man, this covenant child, his very short statement to the man shows to him that Jesus knows all about him, knows his heart, knows his sin, knows his past. He knows all that the man is hiding. He'd been lying on his mat for 38 years, never repenting of his sin. But on this day, this man came face to face with the Son of God, with mercy, walking around on the earth, calling out to this man, turn from your sin and be forever healed, be forever made whole, turn from your sin. But instead of turning toward Jesus in repentance and faith, the man turns away from Jesus to hang on to his sin and even throw Jesus under the bus. I don't mind that you healed my paralysis, but leave my sin alone. What will your answer be, my brothers, my sisters? Will you answer Jesus' call positively? Every covenant child, also Parker John, receives the call to come and place our trust fully in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When we repent, when we trust in Him, all our guilt is washed away. And that that is what brings rest, Sabbath rest. That is what brings peace to our souls. Stephen, Victoria, make sure you tell Parker about that. Explain to him what, what, 
God promises to him. We're going to have a summary of it in just a few moments. Explain that to him as he grows up. And model for him what this looks like to answer Jesus' call. It's a call that comes to us all. Will you go to Jesus? Will I go to Jesus with with a broken heart, with a contrite heart, confessing my sins so that He can make us whole? Will we go? Do you want to be healed? Amen.